Hey stranger. Last week's episode was sort of a new thing for this podcast because instead of just talking about what I think, we had someone else on to talk about their lived experiences. So since we talked last week about our lived experiences in toxic relationships, I thought that this week we could talk about what makes people into toxic beings and why do they continue to create toxicity in their lives and everyone else's. So I think that a lot of people do not recognize their own toxic behavior. And a lot of people don't really view themselves as toxic. And most of that is because we like to view ourselves as good people. Now, it doesn't mean that toxic people are inherently bad people. And the reality is, is that a lot of us display toxic features in different ways and throughout our lives, and those may change. And there are certain features that you see, or instances that you see in relationships that are inherently toxic. So let's start with those. Codependency is a inherently toxic cycle. And it, I say this because there are very few instances where codependency does not develop into a toxic cycle. So it's hard to say that codependency can not be toxic. The idea of codependency is two people who rely on each other for everything. But also, it does not have to go both ways. And that's primarily the reason that codependency becomes toxic. It's because more than more often than not, it only goes one way. So often in relationships, you'll see one partner who needs constant attention and validation and they need to depend on the other partner constantly. They need to be accessible 24-7 in order to keep that codependent partner satisfied. And this is what creates toxicity in relationships, is this idea that one partner constantly needs to be able to reach the other and the other needs to constantly be available. And I think that we all, or a lot of people, believe that in a relationship, you should constantly be each other's number one priority. And the reality that we all have to face is that a lot of us have things in our life that take up more time and brain power than a relationship. I like to think of relationships as a nice thing to come home to. Not necessarily literally as in you come home to your partner because again some people don't live together but in the way that when you go out and you're at work or you're at school or you're doing what you have to do that is your priority at the time. But when you are able to come home or step back from your responsibilities 
then your relationship becomes your priority. And a lot of relationships suffer when one partner is over-focused or over-involved or just in a position where something else is very time-consuming because it's hard for the person who is not in that time-consuming or stressed-out position to understand that the relationship cannot be the number one priority in any and all situations. Now, the reason I bring this up is because in relationships where one partner is very codependent, they may not be able to understand that the other partner in the relationship has other priorities. And we make this mistake of weighing our relationships against other responsibilities that we have. So work and school and everything. Relationships take work, but they're not responsibilities in the same way that we have to focus on, say, university or our jobs or our goals and ambitions. So if you're weighing the way that a partner views your relationship in terms of priority against responsibilities that they have, it's never going to turn out well. And the reason I say this is that a relationship is not should not be viewed in the same light as a responsibility such as work work is something that unfortunately due to our capitalistic society everyone is forced to do in order to be able to survive so by the very nature of our capitalistic society we have to work to survive so you cannot compare a relationship to work and a job because a relationship is not something that we need to survive It's something that we love and cherish and hold in its own regard. So if you're asking your partner to prioritize you over their job, depending on who they are, that may not go well. For some, it may be easy. But for others, if they're working full time and they can't afford to not do that and not take focus on work, then you're asking them to basically give up their ability to take care of themselves financially in order to prioritize your relationship 100% of the time. And this is what we often see in codependent relationships, where one partner does not understand that there are other responsibilities that they have than just maintaining their relationship. And this is what breeds toxicity, because if you cannot understand that in our society we have to work to survive and people have to prioritize their work in order to be able to survive, then you're going to view whoever you're with as prioritizing their work. But of course it's a priority, right? It's easy to think that, of course, something like work would be a priority when you think about the fact that we have to work to survive. Without money, we cannot do anything. We cannot take care of ourselves. But the reason that I bring this up and drone on and on and on is because there are so many things to think about that often get disregarded in toxic relationships. So in a way, this whole little speech about jobs and capitalism is me sort of explaining to you how in codependent and toxic relationships a lot of the simple realities of our lives get ignored so i just spent 
five minutes talking about how you can't prioritize a relationship over certain things that you need to survive and that we have responsibilities in life. These are all simple facts that I can say to you, but these things often wouldn't get talked about in a toxic relationship. So I very easily articulated to you things that need to be thought about, things that need to be thought about rather when in a relationship and yet a toxic partner may completely ignore every reality that I've just said because they feel that they should be the number one person. Toxic partners tend to take over the lives of their non-toxic counterparts because they feel that they should be the be-all end-all of that person's life and simply we cannot live that way whether it's good for us or not or we want to or not but we have things we have to do in our lives in this society and in order to survive and to prosper and to meet our meet our goals but they're often overlooked another way that people tend to portray and show toxicity within relationships and is how they approach communication with their partner it is much more common in cis men for gaslighting to occur in a relationship and that is when a partner disregards everything that the other partner is feeling or thinking by manipulating them to make them think that it's their problem or they're imagining it or anything like that. So an example would be if you approached, if we were thinking of a heterosexual relationship, if you were the girlfriend and you approached your boyfriend and said, I saw a message on your phone it popped up while you were in the washroom. I didn't mean to read it, but it was on the counter and it popped up. It was from a woman and she asked if you were free later today. What's that about? You're not breaking their trust. You're not snooping. It's just a matter of what happened. You saw a message, you approached them about it. You say, I wasn't trying to because you weren't. Simple as that. Now, the gaslighting is when, in response, your boyfriend goes, well, why were you looking at my phone? Why were you snooping? Why would you even read my messages? Do you not trust me? I have nothing to hide. You're breaking my trust. You're going against my privacy. She's just someone from work. Why would you be reading my messages? None of that has to do with what you asked. And none of it has to do with the situation, but in oftentimes when you're in these manipulative and toxic relationships, your response would be, well, I'm very sorry, I didn't mean to read it. It's a, like, it's okay, I'm not going to ask any more questions, I'm really sorry, I shouldn't have looked at your phone or whatever. But you, but you didn't do anything wrong. And I think that we often see these sort of patterns portrayed or we've witnessed them in our own life or we've been in them and we get caught in that and that's because... Manipulation is something that's hard to guard yourself against. Oftentimes being that a lot of us have experienced it in our lives and 
when it comes up again, we don't have the ability to protect ourselves from it or have the conscious awareness that it's happening. And manipulation often is the number one form of toxicity that forms within relationships. Now, the interesting thing about manipulation within relationships is that for heterosexual relationships, it tends to look very gendered. So, like I just described, men tend to get defensive and gaslight and spin the situation around, whereas a lot of toxic women in relationships, well, toxic cisgender women in heterosexual relationships specifically, tend to manipulate in a form that I believe women learn from a very young age. That being when they feel that they've done something wrong, even if they know that they have, they tend to cry in order to make the other party feel guilty so that the conversation is dropped. Now, I've seen this in relationships. I've heard people talk about it. I've heard women talk about how they do it and they don't know why and it's not on purpose. But I think that a lot of us as young women learn that when we are growing up, if we are in a situation where we are in trouble, the best, the way that we learn to deal with it is to cry because we're young women and we know if we cry, then the anger stops and we get comfort instead of facing the consequences. And I don't think that this is a conscious way. I don't think it starts consciously, but I think that it develops consciously. It develops into it becoming a conscious fact that if I cry, I don't have to deal with this anymore and it's done and the other person will feel bad and then I don't have to feel guilty. For a lot of us as young women, we learned when we would get in trouble that when we cried, it often would end and it didn't start as on purpose. Our response was just to cry. And for men, that's not how it is. A lot of men grow up in households where they can't express their feelings and they can't express themselves through crying. So they have to develop different ways to sort of ward off situations they don't want to deal with. And for a lot of them, they just try to pit the blame onto someone else. And it's sort of like an offensive trick where you go, no, it wasn't me, it was them. It wasn't me, it was them. Are you sure you saw it? Are you sure that that's what happened? And so on and so forth. So I think that's where we get the two main ways that men and women manipulate each other is women through crying as a defense mechanism in order to not have to deal with the situation and men in deflecting what happened back onto the person or onto someone else so they don't have to deal with it. And I just think it's interesting to notice that these two forms of manipulation carry often and are seen a lot. And these are not like a few people that I know that do this or maybe you know someone that's like that. No, 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 no. These ways of manipulating people you see in almost everyone in some form or another or at some point or another. And it comes from growing up in toxic households and developing into toxic adults. So if you know someone who grew up in an unstable environment or a toxic environment, they are likely to show these way forms of manipulation dependent on their 
gender if they are cis men and women because that's how they were raised and it often stems from toxic parenting so it's way more common than people think for these things to present themselves and I think in dominant culture we talk a lot about how men manipulate specifically how cis men manipulate and how men gaslight and they get defensive and they're emotionally unavailable and while I do think that's true I also think we need to look at the bigger reason why men are more likely to isolate themselves emotionally and be emotionally unavailable and get defensive and I think it's just because they were not allowed to show their emotions when they were younger so instead they learned how to become defensive and deflect because the only way to deal with the situation was to not get emotional it was to deflect and then when presented with a situation they do not want to deal with as adults they do get more emotional but the only emotion they were allowed to show as younger children was anger because men are allowed to be angry and women are allowed to be sad and the way that i'm speaking right now is very heavily gendered and very stereotypical but that's the reality of how people are being raised and the dominant way that people raise their children because these stereotypes and these ideas of how people should be raised and these very gender-based ideas of how people are allowed to portray themselves is still very dominant in today's society and while the younger generation is trying to change that and hopefully we will be able to change that it's still very dominant and that's why many men and women of our generation still act this way i think that all of us have to be aware of the ways that our personalities or how we interact with people could be perceived as manipulative or toxic i think that we all have the potential to be manipulative and toxic and we just have to be careful of our intentions in how we react to things because again toxicity and manipulation is often reactionary in that people don't go up to someone with the intention of manipulating them it's when put in a situation where they have to react they react in toxic or manipulative ways so as long as we're all aware of how we respond to things and sort of check ourselves for our behavior we are going to develop into better people and better partners in turn i want to end this episode with asking you all to take a minute and think about what you believe a healthy relationship looks like and then think from there how much of that is based on dominant culture and portrayals of relationships and less about actually what you feel needs a relationship needs to look like in order to it for it to feel healthy um because i think you'll often find that what we think is a healthy relationship and what actually is from a therapeutic viewpoint does not connect so i just ask you all take a minute think about your ideal relationship 
and think about what makes it healthy. And then ask yourself, is this really what makes a relationship healthy? Or is it what I think a relationship should look like?